Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe, I have a uh, special treat for you today. We are going to be doing an entire episode, essentially, on my commute to work. Oh, th- uh, and you <laughs> are not based here in New York, and um, you're in Abu Dhabi, so this is like a very Tracy-centric episode, right? Well, hopefully not. Um, but I am in Abu Dhabi, and <laughs> at least once a week, I drive over to Dubai. It's about an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours, depending on how bad the traffic is. And it goes along this one road called the E11 Highway, and it's kind of a famous road over here. Why is it famous? Is it just because it it connects the two cities, I'm guessing? It connects the two biggest cities in the UAE. It's also the UAE's longest road, and it kind of stretches and weaves through a bunch of other Gulf states. And what we're going to be talking about today is the history of how that road came to be. And I promise you, there is actually a markets angle in this. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Who uh, Who are we talking to? All right. So, Joe, we have joining us today Matthew McLean. He is a Ph.D. candidate at New York University and a specialist in Middle Eastern studies. So the perfect person, really, to walk us through the history of this road. Great. Let's get to it. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Why don't you you set the scene for us? You know, the road starts to get built. I think it was sometime in the 1960s. What did this area, the United Arab Emirates, actually look like at the time? Uh, Well, at the time, first of all, it wasn't yet the United Arab Emirates. It was still known as the Trucial States from the truces that the various sheikhdoms had signed with the British Empire in the 1800s. First, a truce on sea to to, uh, prevent piracy, or what was called piracy and what some might call legitimate commercial competition for the British. And then there was a second truce that was signed later that century to avoid fighting on land, which wasn't always observed. But uh, the point is that this is where the the area, the Trucial States, got its name from. It was peripheral to the world economy. It was even it was the periphery of the periphery in some ways. It was governed from British India. The only reason the British were really there was to protect the maritime and land approaches to India. So it was pretty much ignored by by the British. But nevertheless, it had an important role, um, which was to produce pearls. And pearling uh, in the Gulf area uh, was the the mainstay of the economy, at least through mm-hmm. the 1920s. And then the pearling economy collapsed. And in the 30s and 40s, because of the Great Depression and World War II, mo- the area was fairly isolated in, in some regards, at least it's perceived that way compared to what it is today. Of course, there were many still maritime connections to India, to East Africa. Uh, there was overland trade uh, as well. Of course, people made the Hajj to Mecca. Uh, but it was very much uh, a part of the Indian Ocean world. There were no paved roads until Dubai City started building some in, in, the, in the late 50s. And uh, one of the oil companies built a road for its own equipment in the western region of Abu Dhabi around the same time. So most transportation was by camel, by donkey, by foot, and of course by sea. So you mentioned oil just then. So something did happen in the area in the sort of 1950s, early 1960s that eventually ended up changing the landscape and uh, was the catalyst for the construction of this road that I now shuttle back and forth on every day, right? 
Yes. Oil, of course, had already been discovered in the region in Iran in, I, I think, 1908, and then uh, later in Bahrain and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and so on. But the Trucial states were uh, were latecomers to the game. Uh, it was the the oil in the in the Emirates is pretty deep underground relative to other areas in the Gulf, so it was harder to get to. Um, but uh, oil requires uh, a number of things that were at the time new in the Trucial states. Uh, oil concessions, which were signed with individual sheikhdoms, required, for example, knowing where the borders of a sheikhdom were. And no one had ever drawn formal land boundaries on a map before because it simply wasn't necessary. It was uh, it was often known where the boundary was, roughly speaking. There were some areas, of course, that were in dispute, but those areas, you know, had problem-solving mechanisms and other mechanisms of governance that, you know, had developed over time organically uh, to resolve disputes on a local level. But borders were a really new thing, and this was one of the things that oil brought in because you have to know where you're allowed to drill. So what did this mean? So talk about the road specifically. Mm-hmm. Oil required the creation of borders. Mm-hmm. Why specifically this road? Uh, well, the road, in some ways, is a is only secondarily related to oil. The road was built for political reasons, not for economic reasons. Uh, and when I'm talking about the road, I mean from Dubai to Ras al-Khaimah, so in the okay. northern part of the UAE, what today is the UAE. But when oil was discovered in Abu Dhabi, of course, people from the Trucial states had gone to Bahrain and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia to work, and those countries were already producing oil. Uh, so there was a sense of what oil could bring. And when oil was exported from Abu Dhabi, but the ruler at the time, Sheikh Shakbut, didn't spend the money that it brought in, of course, there were these great expectations which went unfulfilled. Uh, and this created a, a huge gap in expectations versus reality, which mm. cre- uh, created the possibility for political dissent. Now, the second thing that was happening at the time was that as people in the Trucial states moved to the oil-rich countries of the northern Gulf, Kuwait and Bahrain, but especially Kuwait, they encountered teachers from Egypt, from Palestine, from Iraq, and so on, and and workers from those countries as well. And and they brought with them ideas like uh, Nasserist pan-Arabism, socialism, communism, and all of this was seen as a threat to the existing political order. So the British, uh, what they decided to do was to spend more money on development of infrastructure in the region, uh, which they had never really done before in over 100 years uh, of of their time there. But also the Arab League, uh, led by Nasser's Egypt, also wanted to spend money on development because this, of course, development is a way to win hearts and minds, as people say today. So when the Arab League sent a mission to assess development needs in the Trucial states, the British got very worried. The Arab League decided that a road would be the most visible project with the most immediate impact for the public to see, uh, because obviously it affect, it you know it would it's there and people experience it in daily life and so on. Uh, so the British, in response, decided that they would build the road. What happened, to make a long story short, is that the the British actually, when the rulers accepted, two of the rulers accepted the opening of Arab League offices in their states in Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah, the British decided that this was completely unacceptable, that Arab League development offices would be used for political subversion and propaganda. And, you know, eventually there would be an armed rebellion to kick the the British out of the Trucial states, just as was already happening in, in Aden and in, in Yemen and so on, uh, and in southern Oman. 
and if the British lost the the Gulf, of course, this would potentially bring the Gulf into the orbit of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which would be disastrous for the West. So even something as small as a development office mm-hmm. in the small towns of Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah in 1965 was seen as potentially a major threat to the Western world. Wow. Of course, part of this in the British diplomatic correspondence is diplomats on the ground in the Gulf who are worried you know, on, about their local position, but they're trying to get the attention of their superiors in London. And so they have to paint this apocalyptic right. picture that people in London will understand. And they, of course, everyone in London understands, well, this is the Cold War. So yes, it has implications for that and we should do something. So the British arranged the overthrow of the ruler of Sharjah because he was the most pan-Arabist, the most Nasserist, the most anti-British of all of the rulers. He was exiled to Cairo. Uh, he was replaced with someone more amenable to to British interests. The problem, though, was that the Arab League immediately announced uh, a boycott of the Trucial States Development Council that was going to fund the road, and the British themselves didn't have enough money to build the road. So this then created a problem because, again, they ha- they need to fulfill people's expectations of development, and people by now were expecting the road. So for political reasons, the road had to be built by someone. Uh, and the British, of course, wanted it to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the reasons for this is that, of course, if you control development policy, you control who gets the contracts. And the British government could spend money giving a contract to a British company, ensuring that the, the, the money would then circulate right back to Britain. And this is true of development policy right. everywhere and at all times, basically. What happened was that... Uh, King Faisal of of Saudi Arabia stepped in to say that uh, he would build the road, but in respect of the Arab League boycott, he would not fund it through the British-run Trucial States Development Council. He would finance it independently, hiring his own contractors and construction firms, which he did. I mean, it was the Bin Laden Company, the largest construction company in Saudi Arabia, that that wound up uh, building the road. But the, the key thing is that while the, the road was built in order to satisfy political expectations and social expectations of development, and these expectations were created by the oil boom in other countries and then in the region, and then lack of a similar boom in the Trucial States. The road was not built for economic reasons, and as British diplomats continually pointed out at the time, there was no justification for the road. I mean, right. So uh, it was built. Matthew, they were actually against it, right? Because at the time, I think the Trucial States had something like fewer than a hundred cars. Is that right? Yeah, there were a few fewer than a hundred in Ras Al Khaimah, which is the northernmost emirate. I think there were ninety-one, if I remember correctly, uh, private private cars and registered taxis. Um, of course, there were more in Dubai and Sharjah and so on. In the diplomatic correspondence, you can see a divide between the, the British diplomats and the political offices who wanted the road to be built. And then the Middle East Development Division, which was all these economists and, and development experts who thought that you know the road would cost uh, over a million pounds. But like any other investment, you have to have an adequate return on investment. And, there's, and the, invest, the return on investment for a road is the additional economic activity generated by improved transportation. And they thought that given the level of economic production in the region at the time, there's no way that a one million pound expenditure on a road would ever justify itself. So take it forward a bit. <laughs> and, the be- and you know, from the beginning, this looked like purely wasteful. Mm-hmm. How did that develop? I mean, wh- at what point did that turn around and become a significant thing? Well, at almost- what point did they realize mm-hmm. that it could be a much bigger deal than they would have otherwise thought? 
Right. Well, right before the actual construction on the road began, on the main section from Sharjah to Ras al-Khaimah, the, the, the longest section, uh, right before it began, uh, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nahyan came to power in Abu Dhabi. And unlike his brother, who he had overthrown, Sheikh Zayed actually did spend Abu Dhabi's oil money on development. So as soon as the road was built, of course, the justification was there because now the money was flowing throughout mm. the entire region. And all of the political reasons why the road had been built in the first place uh, were now kind of irrelevant because suddenly everyone had an, almost an overabundance of money. You know, People returned from Kuwait and Bahrain and so on to take up jobs at home. The political situation had changed absolutely 180 degrees. So suddenly you get this oil boom, essentially, and all this money flowing in. You have this one big road, but lots of other roads obviously get built in subsequent decades. In fact, a lot of people nowadays say that the UAE is pretty much a driving culture. In, in some senses, it's like living in Texas, right? No one walks anywhere. You have to have a car. How did that change society over here? Well, there's a, a, lot, of, uh, there's a lot of things that happened that changed First, you can look in cities like, uh, well, like Dubai, for example, where you have an urban core around Dubai Creek, which, of course, now there are streets and roads, very you know narrow ones, but was built for walkability. It was built before cars were prevalent in the region, and the urban forum and street patterns in Bur Dubai and Dara have, by and large, been kept. Abu Dhabi is a different case because the old Abu Dhabi was was completely demolished and the only building left really is Qasr al-Hassan and now it's a city on a on a grid with with these huge city blocks and so on. But uh one of the things that happened was that as you know people in these old neighborhoods around Dubai Creek and so on, you know, you could walk every day from your your home to your the homes of your brother and your sister and your extended family and and people really knew each other, and they interacted a lot. Then as people moved out, uh, as the Emirati population, as they weren't known as Emiratis yet, but uh, but the, the people who would become Emirati citizens, as they got cars and so on, these neighborhoods became unsuited for modern living, and the houses were small and, and so on. Uh, so they moved out to more suburban neighborhoods. And this is a pattern that's seen in the UAE among Emirati citizens from the 1960s, and it continues until today, that they continually have moved out of the urban core further and further and further, continually leaving older neighborhoods, which then expatriates move into, uh, and so on. And of course, automobiles are what makes this possible. Perhaps someday we'll see an, a return of Emiratis to, to the urban core, and you know maybe Emirati artists and hipsters and so on will gentrify older neighborhoods. And... Yeah, yeah. hearing you talk about that, uh, it kind of reminded me, uh, I was born in Detroit, and people mm -hmm. talk a lot about the big highway that intersected the city, and you know, there was a massive white flight, and mm -hmm. the core of Detroit was sort of emptied, and then now, after decades, there is some very tiny reverse migration going on. Mm -hmm. But it seems like this is a pattern we see around the world, yes. these destabilizing effects of giant highway projects on uh, city cores. Yes, yes. I mean, this is not something that's unique to the Emirates at all. It's it's happened all over the world. Um, the, I think one of the things that is maybe a little bit different in the UAE is that you have, the, that you have uh, immigrants coming in, you know, expatriate workers who 
are renting out these uh, mm. houses in older neighborhoods. And the homes are still owned by Emirati citizens. So they're actually... So one thing that actually prevents Emiratis or from moving back is that the homes that they used to own, including in some cases very old homes, are rented out and they're a source of income to the family. Uh, so of course you don't want to move back because then you'd lose that that right. source of income, which is not necessarily the case in in American cities. Right. And there and of course there is the cultural difference as well, which I mean you see with white flight here it's fairly similar. Yeah. Um, just a different mix of cultures there. Of course, one of the things that uh, maybe is a little bit similar here, like the way people talk about old Brooklyn, for example, with everyone playing stickball in the streets mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, and people say, well, it's not like that anymore. And Emiratis certainly say the same thing about the new suburban neighborhoods out in, you know, they tend to be out inland in the desert, whereas most of the older generation of Emiratis actually grew up near the beach. Uh, so it's a very different physical environment. A lot of older Emiratis say that you know people don't visit each other like they used to, especially in in the big cities in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. In the Northern Emirates, where the distances aren't as large, and in many cases people haven't moved as far into the suburbs, uh, and in some of the smaller towns, I mean they're still living in basically the same location, just in a newer home with modern utilities and a paved road and cars outside. But in some places, people still do walk and visit every day. Right. So. So that tradition has been maintained by some. All right. But, you know, we had the oil boom. We had the development. Mm -hmm. We had the infrastructure spending. But it seems like there is a little bit of a trade-off in terms of losing, I guess, some of the cohesiveness in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi that there used to be. Yes, yes. Actually, one one story I've heard about uh, why people have such bad driving habits in the UAE uh, that everyone complains about all the time is that or why people drive very fast is as an attempt it or originates in attempts to maintain that cohesiveness because of course in the old days you know before the 60s by and large uh, you used to be able to walk and visit everyone you needed to visit pretty much every day but as people moved out people still wanted to visit each other every day which just meant now you had to drive quite frequently and quite rapidly, <laughs> uh, pretty fast all the time. So that's one theory I've had. I've, I've heard about why people drive so fast in the UAE. I'm not sure that it's actually true or, or anything. Maybe it's just because people have nice cars and on nice roads. <laughs> uh, all right. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, that was thank great. You. Thank you. Thanks. So, Joe, now you probably know more than you ever wanted to about that road, right? Uh, I do. Well, I mean, I you know, I didn't have any expectations of how much I wanted to know about the E11 road, but I'm glad that I uh, learned about that. And it is interesting thinking about these decisions of infrastructure and how to design a city and how universal some of these patterns are. Right. The thing I like about the story is the idea that we had oil wealth in certain parts of the Gulf and that sort of fomented some political discord, some social dissatisfaction, and then that erupted in this geopolitical crisis that ends up being fought over a single road, a single highway uh, in the UAE, or what wasn't even the UAE back then. It's uh, kind of funny to think about. Yeah, I, I was amused by that aspect of the story as well, just sort of seemingly a random domino 
path of effects that led to the current situation, which, again, I knew nothing about. All right, so you'll have to come visit me in Abu Dhabi, and I'll take you for a drive. I will. I can't wait. And I will drive <laughs> along the road. And I'm just, again, I, I just want to, you know, this idea of, you know, you think of these cities, at least from my perspective in New York, never having been there like you are, but Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and you don't think about these sort of commonplace uh, concepts, like people moving out to the suburbs and people changing culture. You, we, we just sort of have these I- static ideas of what these cities are like. Right. But it's sort of a reminder of how little most people on the outside probably understand about these geographies. Uh, well, come to visit. I will, I will. <laughs> I promise. All right, well, that uh, that does it for today's Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Thanks for listening. 